0: On April 19th, 2022, Neil Madden disclosed the vulnerability in many popular Java runtimes and development kits. The vulnerability, dubbed psychic signatures, lies in the cryptography for ECDSA signatures and allows an attacker to bypass signature checks entirely for these signatures. How are popular cryptographic protocol implementations in Java affected? What's the state of Java cryptography as a whole? Join me, Neil, and Lucas as we discuss this on this episode of Cryptography FM. So, before we get started, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Africa Crypt. Africa Crypt 2023, the annual international conference on the theory and applications of cryptology, a major scientific event that seeks to advance and promote the field of cryptology on the African continent. This year it's happening in uh, Sousse, Tunisia. So, I'm originally from Lebanon and uh, my fiance is Tunisian, and it makes me happy to see more events happening in the field of academic and applied cryptography in the region. It's very exciting. So I wanted to give the uh, conference a quick shout-out on the podcast, encourage people to attend. It's systematically drawn some excellent contributions to the field in previous years and has seen many renowned researchers deliver keynote presentations. The conference has always been organized in cooperation with the International Association for Cryptologic Research, the IACR. So check out their website at africacrypt 2023tn and yeah consider attending or submitting a paper i'll see you there i also wanted to remind our listeners that you can engage with us on twitter and on discord so we have a Cryptography FM Twitter account, just Cryptography FM. And we also have a Discord that's uh, linked on the website at cryptography.fm. I would like to hear from you regarding your uh, feedback on episodes, any ideas for future episodes or guests you'd like to have on the podcast. Let's make this a two-way conversation. So make sure you follow us on Twitter at cryptographyfm or join the Discord and hit us up and talk to us. Neil Madden is the author of API Security in Action and the founder of Illuminated Security, a UK-based startup providing application security and applied cryptography training and consulting. Previously, Neil was the security architect at ForgeRock, a leading identity and access management provider. He is an active member of the OAuth Working Group at the IETF and contributor to the Crypto Forum Research Group, the CFRG. Neil has over 20 years of experience as a professional software engineer and has a PhD in computer science from Nottingham University. Through no fault of his own, he largely programs in Java. So Neil, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Hi, thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Maybe it's best to get started by you telling us a little bit about the background for this vulnerability that you found in April of last year, Psychic Signatures. You know, it's an an interesting name. Could you tell us more about what led to this name and maybe a high-level overview of the vulnerability itself
1: right so psychic signatures comes from um a plot device in doctor who which is a a long-running uk science fiction show which hopefully lots of people have have seen um and there's this recurring plot device where the doctor wants to get somewhere he's not supposed to be get past a security guard or something. And he has this ID card, which is just completely blank. It's just a blank piece of paper. But it's made of this special psychic paper, which means that when he holds it up, this this blank um, ID card, the security guard or whoever sees something that looks like a valid ID and uh, uh, something that allows him to have access. And so he goes in and gets into things. Uh, and so the idea with this vulnerability is that it's a, a similar kind of vulnerability, Um uh, and it affects um, a type of signature scheme, digital signature scheme in in Java, um, the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm, ECDSA. Uh, and the idea is is that you can effectively send a blank signature as your as your signature, and Java will look at that and see it as a valid signature for anything at all. So normally, a signature scheme, you have a private key and you sign some message. Uh, to produce a signature, and then nobody can tamper with that message or nobody can create a forgery of that message. Uh, And um, the person verifying it can just use your public key to verify that the signature is correct. Uh, Whereas with this bug, you can just send a completely blank signature, just all zeros, and um, it verifies as, as correct for any message. Um, so this has some serious real-world implications because these signatures are used for things like authentication mechanisms. So uh, one of the things I was particularly looking at at the time was um, WebAuthn and FIDO. So you know, secure hardware security keys, which are used for two-factor authentication for you know high high-value um, uh, accounts and things like that. Uh, and those, most of those use ECDSA signatures as, as the way they authenticate. So you go, you plug this little thing into your computer, um, you go and visit your website. Usually you type in a password or something first and then it prompts you to um, sign using your key to, to log in. And so you press a button on your key uh, and it signs a signature over a, a challenge that the website has produced. And then sends it back. And with this bug, if you're if the server was running Java, an affected version of Java with this bug, uh, then rather than signing it with your key, you could just send an all zero signature, and Java would go, "Yep, yeah, sure, that checks out. That's a valid signature, and just let you in." Um, so, so it was pretty serious for that. That kind of yeah, thing
2: yeah so you mentioned that um some of the versions of java were affected so like what specific versions were affected and what were unaffected
1: yeah so it was java 15 was when the the bug was introduced and it and it uh, went through then to java 18 um was when oracle actually released released the patch so java 18 had already been released by the time i found the bug so um, there'd been a few versions out there for a while before uh I discovered it.
2: So it's kind of interesting actually that the the bug was introduced, right? So it wasn't there before.
1: Yeah, it was introduced in a in a rewrite as these things often are. So the old code for this used to be written in C++ um and so it was it was a native library that was added onto the Java uh, virtual machine. Uh, and for various reasons, um Oracle decided that that old implementation had security issues um, and needed to be rewrit- rewritten. And they rewrote it into Java itself. so it's it's written in in Java. Um, and uh, as part of that, they completely redesigned how it was written. So the old version, c used a general purpose big integer library to uh, perform all the operations. Um, and I think the the issue with that that they were they're worried about was that it was not timing safe. So, um, you know, uh, these days we're often worried about cryptography code running in constant time so it doesn't leak details of your private key through through how long the code takes to run. Uh, and that old C++ version definitely wasn't timing safe. And so they rewrote it in Java and they wrote a new... Um, Uh, timing-safe Java big integer library uh, as part of that, which they use across various um, cryptographic implementations. Um, And so they use that then for this ECDSA implementation. But unfortunately, as part of that rewrite, they seem to have skipped some of the more basic checks in the specification uh, and introduced this bug.
0: How long was the time interval between the introduction of this rewrite and uh, you being able to spot the bug?
1: I'd have to go and check for certain, but I think it was at least a couple of years. Um, So the way Java versions work is that they have long-term supported versions, and then they'll have two or three intermediate releases and then another long-term supported version. So Java 11 was long-term supported, and then you had Java 17, I think it was, which is the next long-term supported version. So, the bug made it into Java 17, which got released, uh, and I didn't find it until Java 18, which was another, at least another six months on from then, I think. Um, so, yeah, so potentially people were already deploying Java 17 in production. I mean, that, that was part of the reason I discovered it was that at 4Drop, where I was working at the time, we were moving to support Java 17 because we had lots of customers asking us for that support. Um, so, I was, I was, Kicking the tires of Java seventeen when I when I discovered the bug. Well, how did you discover the bug? Yeah, so I had been reading. Um, I can't remember which textbook it was. Before this, I was trying to go back and see if I could rediscover which it was. But I, I was reading a cryptography textbook, and I was reading about ECDSA, uh, and there was a little note in there just saying, "Oh, you know, and these these two values, because uh, an ECDSA signature is these r and s values that get sent, uh, and they both have to be non zero. And there was just a little note there saying, you know, uh, it's critical that these two values are, are non-zero, and it didn't say much else why. And I thought, okay, so I kind of worked through my head why why it would have to be non-zero, and I could see that there was an issue there. And because I had Java seventeen, I was playing around with it there. I had like a shell open, J shell, which is like the interactive thing. And I thought, well, I'm just going to try this and see what happens in the shell, and and it came back and just said, you know, valid true. And I was like, initially, I was just like, I must have I must have typed something wrong or I must have misunderstood what I've just done here. Uh, And so I was like, I tried it again and it was still true. And then I fired up Java 11 and tried it there and it came back valid as false. And I was like, okay, so something weird is happening here. Was the, um, was the
0: Jaws theme song playing in your head as, uh, <laughs> as this unfolded? I mean, it almost seems like they were actually aware of the
1: edge case not being handled. Well, I mean, it's, it's um, so the original C++ implementation has like really clear, because the spec is really clear. If you go and read the ECDSA spec, there's like really clear step one, do this. In fact, it's very, It's step one is check that R and S and not zero is is step one of the verification algorithm. Um, and the ECDSA spec, you know, um, was referenced in the uh, C++ source code. So they had comments saying, you know, citing chapter and verse, this is what we're doing. We're doing this check because this is step one. And then we're doing this check because this is step two. Uh, when it got rewritten to Java, the code got spread over multiple files and it became a lot more complex, I think, because they were trying to reuse a framework to implement all kinds of cryptographic primitives. So they're using the same framework, I believe, now to implement like poly 1305 and x25519 and NIST prime order curve signatures and ECTH and everything like that is all now in part of this big framework you know so there's lots of abstraction and stuff going on um and i think somewhere along the line they just these crucial checks just got forgotten um and as i as i put in the uh in the original blog post when i was writing about this as well there was that they actually missed this there's three stages where you could have prevented this bug there's this kind of you can you can just check that these values are in range that they're you know step one is check that r and s are between 1 and n minus one where n is the order of the uh, generator um but then also you have to the s value you have to compute the multiplicative inverse of, of that um which is not defined if s is zero right there's no there's no inverse of of zero you know one over zero doesn't exist um but again but the the algorithm they use to compute that uh inverse it just if you give it a zero it returns a zero um so it doesn't do any kind of check on on whether it's got you know it's garbage in garbage out um and then later on as well there's there's another bit in the verification algorithm where you take these rns values and you compute a elliptic curve point point. Uh, and if rns is zero then you end up with the point at infinity which again there's another check which is like check that this point is not the point at infinity. And again they skip that check. So um, they just skipped like all of these basic checks in in the in the rewrite. And they're all there in the original C. So um... Aren't there supposed
0: to be um, unit tests or integration tests across the entire framework that catches things right. like that? Even if you replace a significant part of the underlying
1: cryptographic uh, primitive implementation? Yeah, I mean, from from my, you know, rooting around on the OpenJDK, because, you know, the Java source code OpenJDK is open source, it's on GitHub, you can go and look around. There is very minimal unit tests in this area. Um, I can't find any. I don't know whether they're perhaps kept in a separate repository or something, but as far as I could tell, there weren't any unit tests and, in fact, the fix that they put in after I reported this bug didn't contain any tests either. So um, it's, it's confusing to me how they do that. I mean, when, I, when I've ever done a kind of big rewrite of, like, some old legacy code, the first thing you do is write loads of tests to kind of understand how the old code works and make sure that your rewrite works the same way, um, whereas this seems to have been skipped. In, this in fact, talking about loads of tests is kind of interesting because there
2: is a big suite of tests for different cryptographic stuff, including ECDSA called like the Watchproof stuff. And those weren't used at all, right? Right,
1: exactly. Which is which is confusing because yeah, like Google, like you say, have developed this this project um Whiteproof, Witchproof, I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh which is just this comprehensive test suite of of bugs in cryptographic implementations. Um and in fact after I published this um one of the authors of that um, test suite said, "You know, actually, I told Oracle about this ages ago, and as far as I was aware, they'd incorporated this into their their internal testing pipeline. So it should have should have picked this up, because I ran it. I ran it uh, after I discovered the bug. I was like, I wonder if this is in 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 Witchproof, and I ran it locally, um, and sure enough, that test failed, and like immediately just said, right." Yeah, except zero, zero R and S values are accepted. Um, so, yeah, it would it would have caught it. Um, what, one thing is that that project has been sort of not very well maintained for a while. And in fact, it appears now to have gone into archive mode on, on GitHub. And I did have to make some code changes to get it to run against Java 17 um, to the test suite. So it might be that it's just, you know, It used to run and then it stopped working at some point and nobody at Oracle has taken the time to fix it up and make sure it runs against recent releases. Hopefully they've done that now in response to this. I did suggest that they do that. This seems like a
0: pretty incredible bug. I mean, the way that this bug uh, is exploited reminds me of uh, bug exploits that you'd find in cryptographic implementations in the 90s or the 2000s, right? The the, the sort of, you know, you pass a bunch of zeros and, and you're through. Um, could you give us examples of how this bug mm-hmm. um, could be exploited in the wild? You know, uh, Java is used to implement all, t- all sorts of things from uh, you got embedded, um, you know, smart cards, stuff like that, um, TLS, uh, tons of things running Java. So um, what are the real world implica- implications of something like that?
1: Yeah. Right, I mean, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of different places where this is used. You know, ECDSA signatures are used all over the place now. Um, so uh, somebody did create a nice little proof of concept with for TLS, where they created a little um, Java TLS server and then a, a client. I think in Go that would just send. You know, it would do the handshake, TLS handshake, and then it would just send like an all zero. Um, uh, signature over the, over the transcript at the end. Uh, and Java would just go, yep, yeah, fine. That, that's all good. Um, so, you know, in that case, you could, you could form a, a man in the middle attack against, um, against a, a vulnerable Java implementation. You know, if you've got a Java client that's connecting to, to the internet somewhere and you can get in the middle of that on the network, uh, then you can just spoof anyone's, um certificate basically in any in any um uh, tls connection um and uh, so we already talked about things like fido WebAuthn security keys things like that they're now turning into pass keys so google and apple are, are rolling out these pass keys which is supposed to be the thing that replaces passwords and you know it's basically the same idea that that when you go and log into a website, rather than typing in your password, you would uh, you know do Touch ID or Face ID on your laptop, on your phone, and it would in the background sign something, and um, and that would that would get you in. Again, as far as I'm aware, I'm pretty sure they're using ECDSA signatures for this again. So if if the server is running was running a Java, vulnerable version of Java, then again you could just sign in as anybody with a with a blank signature. Um, so things like that. At ForDrop, we were really worried about it because um, we we were building a product which did things like Saml and OpenID Connect, where you're doing federated login. You know, you're you're redirecting to some other website to do login, and then they're redirecting back. And what they're redirecting back with is a signed assertion that is either something like, a in SAML's case, it's a signed piece of XML saying who you are and who the issuer is and, you know, how you were authenticated in OpenID Connect. It's a, an ID token, which is a signed JSON web token. And again, ECDSA signatures are really popular here because they're, they're small. Um, and so, you know, again, if you were using a vulnerable version of Java and you're using SAML or OpenID Connect, then you could just, Create your own assertion and log in as whoever you want it to be because the signature would check out. Um, so yeah, so there's there's a, there's a large number of places where this just allows you to just completely bypass pretty much all the security. There's a lot of places where we just we put a lot of trust into a single signature, and uh, in this case, it, it 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 would have been misplaced trust.
2: I think that last example you gave is. Uh... It's particularly scary because if you have a single sign-on server like the Saml case, it's used to log into a bunch of different services that a company might use. So if that one server is vulnerable to this thing, now you have access to a whole bunch of you know different services that the company uses, which is quite bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. There there is a mitigating factor here, which is that. Um, there are ways to configure both SAML and OpenID Connect where where the signature is not the only thing. So, for instance, in OpenID Connect, you can use something called the auth, auth code flow, where the signed ID token is not passed through your web browser in a redirect. It's only a little one-time code is passed through, and then the, the server makes a, a back-channel request directly to the authorization server to get the id token and so you'd have to be a bit more uh, in a bit more of a privileged position to be able to intercept that request you'd have to be able to man in the middle attack a, a tls connection then in that point which um, so uh, you 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 know potentially both of those things could be could be bugs you know if it was java on the server then potentially you could man in the middle the tls connection and then forge the assertion but um, it's a bit more work
0: So while we were discussing this, I googled um, for the proof of concept and I found a, uh, as you said, an implementation in Go uh, showing how it can be vulnerable in the case of a malicious TLS server by Khaled Nassar. So I'm going to be linking that in the podcast. Uh, I was also wondering, did anyone look at, for example, maybe if um, some cryptocurrency implementations that use eCDSA uh, could be vulnerable to this? if written in java i don't i don't know what that ecosystem looks like i'm just wondering off the top of my head
1: yeah i mean potentially uh i didn't i didn't look at it myself but um certainly yeah you might you imagine if uh i mean like bitcoin does use ecdsa so you know if you've got a bitcoin client written in java and you're using you know a modern version of java then uh, then potentially yeah you could get double spend vulnerabilities and things like that where uh where um so, or, or not even double spend, just somebody be able to spend funds that they don't own just by sending a, a blank signature on the, on the. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess you'd hope that miners would not be running Java and they would, <laughs> uh, would reject such things, but yeah. So
2: we've talked a bit about uh, Java cryptography and some interesting thing you mentioned before is that by in this rewrite they sort of added a bunch of layers of abstraction and almost sort of obfuscated the code they had before. So do you have any other like broader thoughts about the state of Java cryptography and other things we might we might want to be worried
1: about? So Java cryptography is is it's a bit of a minefield you have to kind of uh, <laughs> uh navigate. So the the old the, the built-in Java cryptography APIs are really um they're quite low level by modern standards. You know, they're, they're quite, you know, if you want to encrypt something, then you have to know, you know, you have to specify the, the block cipher and what what cipher mode, and you have to know whether this mode is authenticated and this mode isn't, and you have to supply your own nonces and uh, and all this kind of low level detail. So it's, it's quite hard. It's very easy to, to get it wrong um, with that stuff. In fact, the signature API is one of the few APIs which is reasonably well designed in Java. Um, and a lot of the code in Java as well is is quite old. I think a lot of it was written in C plus plus and was was kind of you know potentially had memory safety issues and things like that, uh, which have probably been solved over the years. Um, and it's gradually been written mostly in Java now, I think. Uh, but there are there are a lot of quirks to it and a lot of things to to uh, to worry about. You know, uh, for example, you know. One thing I, I've often wanted to do is when you're encrypting something, you want to encrypt in place, so you kind of overwrite the the plain text of what you're encrypting with the with the cipher text. Partly to save space, and partly just to kind of wipe that plain text from memory uh, once you're done with it. Uh, and that's almost impossible to achieve in Java. There's there's kind of APIs that look like they do that, but actually under the hood, they copy stuff into like a million temporary buffers, um, and so you just end up with your with your secret stuff that you're trying to escape just ends up like in in thousands of copies all over the all over the heap and then you know java's garbage collection will run and copy those some more um and so yeah it's really hard to use um so for most people i i you know there are higher level better apis out there so google's tink library for example they have that for java which is great it's written by a lot of the same people who wrote project witchproof um, so they really know what they're doing, and they have, you know, ground-up re-implementations of a lot of these algorithms um, that are that are tested against which proof and a whole bunch of other tests. And you know that they're they're good. They're they're constant time implementations. They're very fast. They're often faster than the the JDK implementations, um, and and they're written by experts who really know what they're doing. Um, and 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 there's not a lot of abstraction in there. If you go and look at it. It's like, well, here's the, you know, x25519 implementation and it's just, that's the source code in one file and it's kind of quite easy. Or, you know, maybe two files, but it's, there's a really clear, it does this one thing. And then there's a completely different implementation of of something else that does does something else. Um, And so they haven't tried to create all these layers of abstraction and code reuse, um, which is, you know, uh, what software engineers are trained to do is to write code with loads of abstraction and code reuse and, and ability to change things easily. But as a security engineer, that's like the opposite of what you want. You want you want really clear, this does one thing, and I can look at it in isolation and know exactly what it's doing. Um, I completely agree. I strongly agree with that. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm looking, this is completely incidental, but I'm actually looking at a bit of JavaScript code right now. It's open source code. And um, it's a Bitcoin library. This has nothing to do with, um, you know, the, the example of your vulnerability. But um, it, because JavaScript has loose typing, the, um, they have this function that processes amounts of Bitcoin. And if you pass a string, if you pass an, a number as a string, like a string that says one, um, it'll process it, I think, as a Bitcoin. And if you pass it as an integer, a number, it processes it as, as a Satoshi. So there's an order of magnitude in the difference between the type of currency, depending on whether you pass into the same function, something as, a, as an integer or a string. And this is a, you know, a library that's supposed to be used in cryptographically, very sensitive contexts like Bitcoin wallets operating on web browsers. It's kind of like uh, I was recently at the circus and I saw someone juggling uh, while walking a tightrope. And it kind of reminds me of that a little bit. Um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like uh, all of this, all of this to say is that I, I strongly agree with your point that uh, in the case of cryptography, you need to avoid unnecessary abstractions and just stick to the math and stick to the logical building blocks and make them as clear as possible. So, in your in your opinion, um, if I'm building something with Java that uses cryptography and I have the opportunity, I should be using Google's Tink library.
1: Yeah, something something like Google's Tink. I also maintain a a, a port of. Um, uh, of SALT, uh, NACL, uh, um, N-A-C-L, the, um, the cryptography library from Dan Bernstein. Um, so that's also similarly high level. Uh, it's much more limited. It only has like the basic kind of, you know, you can encrypt this to somebody's public key. You can encrypt it to a secret key or you can sign something. And that's that's basically it. Uh, and it hides all the algorithms. So that's really high level and that can be quite useful. Uh, tink is much more um, comprehensive it has lots of things and it has a really nice um, abstraction so you it uses the type system to kind of enforce security goals so so you have rather than just having a cipher class you have like i can't remember what they call it now but like a cca secure cipher or something like that so you know it's secure against chosen ciphertext attacks so it's like the the name of the type tells you what security guarantees you get from this thing rather than you having to know oh you know aes gcm mode provides authenticated encryption but aes cbc mode doesn't and you know you kind of like have to have done a a introduction to cryptography course to even begin using java's built-in cryptography apis whereas Think kind of separates that all out for you into does java still have like outdated stuff like uh, can you use
2: aes ecb just by asking for it or has it removed
1: yeah yeah And and it and if you just ask for aes which is a lot of a lot of people would would do just like oh i'll just just aes that's what i know you will get aes in ecb mode and you know you'll be able to see your see see the penguin and all that stuff
0: so this using of the uh, type uh, of the language's type system in order to enforce security abstractions is really great. Um, this is what people have been doing with Rust also. I think if you look at Rust implementations for cryptographic primitives, people use uh, Rust traits and so on to enforce that. But also uh, the cutting edge research in uh, high assurance cryptography is actually built on this. If you look at, have, are you familiar with F for example?
1: I I, I I know of it. I haven't, I'm not that familiar with it. So,
0: I mean, the, the whole point of F-star is that, right? Uh, it's a, pro, a joint project by people at Microsoft Research in, in Cambridge and also here in France. And what they're doing is that they're building this uh, ML functional language that basically uses the Z3 uh, theorem prover as the type checker, more or less. And then types are proofs. You type something as a proof of a point on the curve or whatever, and it's taking that concept of using type systems to enforce security guarantees to a sort of like a hardcore level. Um, we should have an F-star episode.
1: Yeah, that sounds cool. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, um... it's really
0: it's a really cool technology. Sadly, it's very hard to use and very academic and, you know, uh, up its own area sometimes, but um, it's still it's still very, very um, impressive and I think uh, ha- holds holds for bright contributions in the future.
2: Yeah, there's actually an interesting blog post you wrote, Neil, that sort of touches on this idea. It's, uh, it's the parse don't validate thing. That's like a common idea you get in functional programming circles. The idea that instead of just like saying, okay, I take this thing and I validate it, and I need to remember to validate it. I have to manually go from an invalid object at the type level to a valid object at the type level. So with the ECDSA thing, you can maybe say, "I need to go from like an unparsed signature to like a signature that's potentially valid by doing these checks forcefully." So yeah,
1: right, right, exactly. So yeah, you you yeah you transform the unparsed input into something that is guaranteed to be valid because um, you know the type system ensures it. So so it's it's correct by construction. You know that idea that that you you take something and the only way to get uh, a thing of this type that all your other code handles is, is through this parsing routine that is really well, you know, has all the checks in it. And so you know that once that's the only way you can get this, you know, parsed group element or whatever um, out of a signature um, and, and all the rest of your code just operates on that type, um, then, then you know that it must have come been parsed correctly uh, to get there. Um, rather than just having a, um, you know, a check that just, just goes, you know, if that's invalid, I'm going to throw an exception here, and then I'm going to carry on using the same raw byte array that I, that I got from the input through the rest of the code. Um, there was a really nice example of this. I think one, one of the things, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, Interest, I think, now in, in advanced type systems and, and things, but but actually, you know, even really simple things can catch lots of bugs. Like I think it was it was Bouncy Castle, which is a another Java um, cryptography library, had a bug a few years ago, which was the classic bits versus bytes bug, where they were they were deriving a a, a key, I think a HMAC key, uh, and they derived a sixteen bit key rather than a sixteen byte key, so it was like trivial to to brute force. Uh, and again, one one of my biggest things is just rather than just having the size be an integer, just have it be like some typed representation, like, you know, bytes or seconds or minutes or something like that, um, or, or even just, you know, having a unit as a, as an extra, you know, enum that you pass in as an extra argument just just so you have to think you know what what is the actual unit of this thing that i'm passing in so
0: generally speaking can you tell us more about the current state of um you know java cryptography engineering um to get to give some context i i personally recently got an android phone because i saw i saw it in the shop and it folds and so i'm basically a a child a sort of idiot really and i was really captivated by this and i, I went and bought it because it folds and i was like oh my god i went and showed it to all my friends it folds wow and uh now i'm looking at <laughs> now i'm looking at this is, that's what actually happened and now, now i'm looking at kotlin and at java because i'm like trying to understand you know is, is, it, is it actually fun to write to, to write a java application um, and, I, you know, Android Studio seems to have uh, improved a lot since the last time I tried it when I was a student, I don't know, a million years ago. Um, and there's like stuff like Jetpack Compose and uh, Kotlin is a thing now. Um, if you're someone doing engineering in that sort of like very general generalist context, especially with Kotlin, which is not something that we've covered yet. Um, wh- what does the ecosystem look like? You know, can I use Tink in that? Uh, context: Are there any other things I should be aware of or watch out for?
1: Android is kind of interesting because it, it's it's sort of Java and not quite Java. So so some things work and some things are a bit different. Um, I don't do a lot of Android programming, so I'm maybe not the best person to ask about that. Um, Kotlin is is amazing. Um, I wish it had been around, you know, when I was starting and and had replaced Java uh, much sooner. Um, but it at least seems to be pushing Java in a good direction as well, and forcing them to kind of make good changes. Um, in terms of like cryptography, then yeah, there's thing there's things like Tink. Tink is really the place to go. Um, they have you know Google obviously also make Android, so they have a, a, a lot of um, incentive to make sure that things like Tink work well on Android. Um, so that, that was definitely where I would I would go. I know my own library. I've got several bugs on GitHub that I haven't got round to saying things don't work on uh, on Android. Um, so yeah, it's not it's not quite straightforward to support Android in crypto code. Um, actually, writing cryptography code in Java is a real pain, mainly because of the lack of unsigned data types. So you're constantly kind of uh, Masking things and converting things back to and from between signed and unsigned representations, and it's just horrible, really. Um, and then, and then, yeah, trying to write constant time code. I mean, you go and read um, guides on writing constant time code. Um, like, um, what's the name of the guy who writes Bear SSL? Thomas Thomas, Thomas Pornin. Pornin, yeah. Uh, he he's written this great guide to writing um, constant time code and it's all down to the level of kind of looking at cpu instructions and you know which architectures will guarantee that a multiplication is constant time and things like this and in java it's just like you're so far away from that you know you've got to think about jit compiler and you know you're trying to run things and and see what assembly gets spat out by the jit compiler and sometimes that changes depending on what order methods are called in and stuff like that and it's just like you just kind of throw your hands up and go wow i kind of hope this is constant time it, it was on my computer and uh, <laughs> yeah so so things like that um yeah can be can be challenging
2: i guess another interesting point uh because often like whenever you get into like the cryptographic reads people start talking about like oh timing attacks and like this potential attack but you looked at this initial vulnerability because you're looking at like API security and applications. Would you say that most bugs are cryptography related or there's is there a huge cloud of other bugs that are have nothing to do with cryptography when it comes to web applications?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. there's there's loads of bugs that are that are around just um, poor implementations. I mean, I mean, I, I don't want this to turn into a podcast of, of beating up on Jots, but you know, JSON Web Tokens um are, are the kind of way that a lot of enterprise software interacts with cryptography, uh, and there's a huge number of kind of design flaws in in Jots that are that are not related to the cryptography really, um, that that repeatedly cause issues. I mean, I mean, there's things like you can just there's a way in. Um, in jots that you can you can sign something but then you can just include the public key in the header so you 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 can say you know here's a signed jot and here's the public key i signed it with and 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 some jot libraries in fact there there was i think there was a jot library from cisco i think that that had this bug that it would just blindly trust this public key in the same message as the signature it, it was validating um and so there's things like that it's like why maybe there's some obscure use case why you'd send the public key in the same message as the signature but i can't you know you have to you have to validate the signature to be able to trust the public key but that's the public yeah um so there's things like that and there's all kinds of you know you can specify the algorithm in the message you can tell you know the server what algorithm to use and one of the options is none so you can just turn off all security and and things like that so th- there's just a whole bunch of these um vulnerabilities which are just that they're, they're not really bugs in in the crypto they're just like bad decisions around around how it is used um and you know we know now that kind of modern modern designs if you look at things like wireguard you know it just it picks some algorithms these are the algorithms that's that's it they're fixed there's no there's no you don't you don't get to choose there are no knobs to to tune you just that's that's the thing it uses Uh, and that's kind of like to me that's the modern way of designing secure protocols is just kind of like you as the expert designing the protocol you think about all these things you pick the algorithms that are suitable for your use case and that's what it uses and if you need to change it in the future then maybe you have some way that you can evolve the version of the protocol or something as a kind of um a, a thing you could do in the future if it becomes necessary but it shouldn't be like that every single deployment uses a different algorithm and a different you know parameters and things like that because because they can
0: yeah,
1: another thing that um is sort of related is that you know a, a lot of the
0: time you will find these situations when reviewing code where it's not really like you said it's not really a cryptographic break it's not like i can just go and and do something horrible like like the psychic signature situation but it is a code smell and it is a uh, a situation where an api could be misused and most likely will be misused given enough time and unfortunately it's really hard to get vendors to care when this is the situation they think that your um overreacting or, um, you know, being uh, grabby for for attention or something, uh, even though I, I, I just, I sincerely don't think that's the case. And one example that we can talk about here is the recent uh, discussion I've been active in on um, Mastodon regarding uh, LastPass and uh, other password managers, such as Bitwarden, that, for example, Bitwarden had this thing where it lets you you the user specify how many pbkdf2 iterations you want on your on your password vault i don't know why maybe like i don't know why you would you you like me as a, as a password manager use it I, w- I, w- I would want that but they had that and they um it was reported as unnecessary and potentially dangerous in 2018 and they didn't do anything about it and now recently um um, I want to link to that in the podcast description because it's actually a, something cool for folks to check out, even though it's not particularly related to to our discussion here with our guest. So Vladimir Palant, who is uh, one of the original founders of Adblock Plus, oddly enough, the, the um, popular ad blocker for web browsers, wrote a post about how um, it's possible for the same kind of... Uh, offline attacks that happened on LastPass to happen on Bitwarden. And um, in Bitwarden's case, you know, they uh, only recently, after this was published, um, issued a statement saying, oh, we're going to increase our PBKDF2 iterations to 350,000, um, uh, even though OWASP changed their recommendation to 600,000 recently. But the thing is, they didn't actually, like Bitwarden didn't actually react until there was a embarrassing blog post. Um, but there was a security assessment that I participated in, in 2018, where we noted that they should probably be switching to S-Crypt, that they should probably be taking measures against offline attacks, that they should probably not allow users to set the number of PBKDF2 iterations. And all of that was completely ignored for five years, right? So, um, I'm like harping on about this thing that's only tangentially related here. And I'm, I'm sorry about that. But you know, like how how do we how do we get my question to you is how do we get uh, vendors to care about cryptography issues and issues and implementations issues in APIs issues in protocols before they actually result in literally you know a security engineer getting a zero to validate as a signature and not believing his eyes and then writing a whole thing about it? Like, do we have to get to that point or someone compromising LastPass and taking all of those vaults and them using, you know, 10,000 year old um, recommendations for PBKDF2 uh, iterations, right? So how do we get people to care? How do we get vendors to care before it reaches that point?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I don't have a, I'd love to have a, like a, a great answer for you of how to fix the fix the uh, the system. But um, yeah, I, do, I don't, I've actually, you know, I've worked on both sides of this because at, at ForgeRock I was I was kind of responsible for uh, the security teams there and kind of triaging bug reports that were coming in and trying to persuade people to, to fix them. And, the, and there were things there which were, you know, things that were high priority which got fixed reasonably well, and then there were things that were lower priority which you saw kind of repeatedly get kind of bumped down and, you know, maybe this will get fixed eventually. And you kind of think, you know, it'd be great if we... could we should just get this done. Um, and it's hard even, even when you're in, you know, a position of authority sometimes to get these things bumped up enough, the priority list to get, to get fixed. Um, you know, Oracle took, you know, I reported the, this bug in, in November and they released the fix in, in April of the following year. So that took a while. They were at least, you know, uh, thankful to me, um, you know, it wasn't like some vendors uh, where where you see them, you know, criticizing people for just reporting security vulnerabilities. At least Oracle, you know, acknowledged it and were like, oh, you know, thanks for spotting this. Uh, but it did take them a while to get it out there. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's it's a hard one. I wish there was a way, yeah, to, to get things. I think... Um, I mean, we had an internal discussion in Fordrock when I when I discovered this vulnerability, and the, some people were pushing towards just full disclosure straight away, and just saying, you know, this is a this is a serious issue. If people have got deployments out here, you know, it's quite an easy issue to find as well. It's not like, you know, trying an all, si- all zero signature would be difficult to try. You know, somebody could easily have have, have found this and started exploiting it. Um and so some people were pushing towards full disclosure um straight away. We didn't in the end. But, you know, still I kind of question whether that was the right thing or not. Um because people could have taken steps to protect themselves against this without an official fix being being rolled out. You know, people would have stopped upgrading, you know, it was still these were still cutting edge Java versions that not a huge number of people had deployed. Um, you know, we maybe could have stopped a few more people deploying them, or maybe you know they could terminate TLS at a load balancer rather than uh, in in their Java. You know, so there's things like that that people could do. So um, yeah, it's it's a tricky question. yeah <laughs> yeah it's um, I wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> promote that as a, as a, as a security advice you know keep keep running outdated versions uh, and then you'll you'll avoid the new and shiny uh, security bugs because uh, you know I've been on the other side of that where we get suddenly get you know people reporting a bug report in your in your product and you uh, you have a look at it and you see they're running a version from like eight years ago and you're like, checking the list of recorded security vulnerabilities against that version, and you're like, yeah, you really need to patch now. <laughs>
2: Maybe ironically in this case, the, the things we complain about actually save people because security people often complain about, you know, people running outdated versions even years behind their support. But in this case, people running older versions were actually protected, <laughs> ironically. But it's the
0: opposite um, <laughs> of the intuition that we want to promote, right? Um, I mean, in, in the case of Java, at least you can patch. Uh, in the password manager case that I was um, just referring to, they only changed the number of iterations for new vaults. So if you sign up today for for whatever, you know, I'm, I don't mean to like name and shame particular password managers. For for Fluffy Bunny password manager, um, you get uh, good, better, you know, PBKDF2 iterations. But if you signed up yesterday, you know, you're vulnerable to offline attacks. So and this is this is you know this is not a forward secure rekeying situation this is one symmetric key that if it gets um cracked your entire online situation is exposed right
2: so if if someone wants to learn more about how do i protect my web applications against vulnerabilities like these and also you know unauthorized access what's a good book or other kind of resource to read <laughs>
1: um well uh, i can plug my own book api uh, security in action which was published by manning in uh, uh, the end of 2020 uh so that does cover a lot of kind of things we've talked about here so open id connect OAuth two things like that json web tokens uh, it goes into a lot of these kind of vulnerabilities and how to avoid them Uh, It also, incidentally, is kind of a a tutorial in cryptography, uh, which I kind of snuck in there. So it teaches you a lot about the basic building blocks of cryptography. Um, I I myself have just started a training company. I haven't launched my courses yet, but if you uh, sign up, there's an illuminated security newsletter you can sign up for and get notified. So there will be courses launching soon on on applied cryptography basics fundamentals uh one on modern authentication techniques and another one on uh, json web tokens as well so uh, those will be coming soon um otherwise there's there's a whole bunch of of good resources out there uh you know if you just want to learn about cryptography and kind of uh uh, how these things will work, then Coursera's um, Cryptography One course is still great. That's Dan, Dan Bonet from Stanford does that course. Everyone's been waiting for decades for Cryptography Two to come out. Um, so uh, hopefully that will will at some time. Um, but yeah, there's some, some great resources out so there. So I'll
0: definitely be linking to your book, API Security in Action, in the podcast description. I took a look at IlluminatedSecurity.com, but it seems like the website is still... Um, being constructed there. So maybe when it's ready, we can also give it a shout out um, on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, this has been great. I I really hope that um, I'm I'm sure listeners have maybe learned a little bit more about the context of uh, Java cryptography and um, the kind of bugs that can still pop up uh, in that ecosystem. Uh, Neil, any uh, last words before we sign off?
1: No, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, I had a great time.
0: All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I just want to remind our listeners that we have a discord now so you can join and discuss latest episodes and so on. Uh, the link is on our website, cryptography.fm. Uh, give it a shot. And thank you so much again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time, whether you're a listener or an active participant here on Cryptography
2: FM.